Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show on the SOT Radio Network, where we expose the lies and emphasize the truth about health in our modern world. Welcome, everybody. Good morning. Uh, today is February 26th. Uh, it's, of course, it's a Friday. And uh, my name is Jonathan. I'll be your host for today. Um, Joining me in our virtual studio here from all across the planet, we have Doug, Tiffany, Erica, and Gabby. And Elliot is busy uh, with uh, schoolwork, so we wish him luck and uh, the best of, uh, of learning capacity that he can muster right now. Mm-hmm. But hey, guys. Hi. Hello. Hello. So today we uh, we have a special treat for you. We have an interview that we recorded last week with uh, Lynn Farrow, who is the author of The Iodine Crisis. Um, and I will spare the uh, the introduction of Lynn because Gabby does that in the interview, and she conducted the interview, did a great job. Um, so uh, I don't know. Do you guys have anything else that you want to say before we, uh, we lead, lead into this? I know we've all kind of been um, – doing the iodine protocol to, uh, you know, to different levels. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, anything to uh, to kind of lead up to the interview that you want to mention? This is going well, to be I just a wanted, one. I just want to say that we encourage discussion and questions, and we can address them at the end of the, of the interview. Yeah, that's a good idea. Just if you yeah, have questions definitely. or anything, they can put them in the chat or, uh, yeah. Um, I guess we won't be taking any call-ins during the interview, but uh, once it's over, maybe we could. Yeah, definitely. Um, So if you want to call in, um, I guess just please wait until the interview is done. But the line for that is uh, the U.S. number, um, 718-508-9499. Or you can uh, can visit the Blog Talk radio page, um, and you can call in via Skype on our blog talk radio page. So we would encourage people to, to do that. Uh, if you want to call in after the interview or leave questions in the chat while it's going on and we can address those afterwards. Um, but I guess without further ado, let's go to the interview with, uh, with Lynn Farrell and we will be back to discuss after this. Welcome to the health and wellness show at thought.net. Today in our virtual virtual studio, we're joined by Jonathan, Tiffany, and Erica. And today we'll have Lynn Farrow, author of the Iodine Crisis: What You Don't Know About Iodine Can Wreck Your Life. Lynn Farrow is a whistleblower. She's also a journalist, researcher, former college professor, and speaker. Her own experience with breast cancer led to the discovery that someone had stolen the medicine with proven benefits reaching back 15,000 years, a medicine that not only helped her, but has helped millions. She currently serves as the the director of Breast Cancer Choices, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the scrutinizing and reporting of the evidence for breast cancer procedures and treatments. Lynn is also the editor of theiodineresearch.com, where she has compiled materials for both beginning and advanced iodine investigators. From obscure studies on iodine and the brain to pieces for the beginner, looking for the widely accepted iodine protocol, the iodine research website is a wealth of information. Welcome, Lynn, to our show. We're so glad to have you here today. Well, thank you. I'm excited to have a discussion about iodine. Mm 
Well, actually, before iodine, I wanted to mention something because I read your book last year, and uh, I practice now mainstream medicine, and I've been familiarized uh, familiarized with it since 1996, more or less. And I have to say that I found it very inspiring to see how you question the breast cancer treatment guidelines and how so many people benefited as you, as you shared your research on iodine. I have never encountered anyone who questioned those guidelines as you did. So I would like you to talk more about it. You know, what was your experience with the medical field and the doctors who suggested you you know, that you should get these or that therapy for breast cancer. Oh, yes, I, I welcome the opportunity to discuss that. I know when you're sick and, and you're desperate, certainly when you have a cancer diagnosis, you assume that everybody that's gone to school for many years has the truth and that it's, there's no arguing uh, amongst the people that have presented this information or the treatment guidelines. So uh, it didn't. I didn't know that there were treatment guidelines. I just thought that they they knew the truth because they had been educated. And then I started to proceed as I would, if for example I was buying a car, I, I would ask you know certain information about the car. You know who said you know is there a consumer's report on this? Like is there anything in writing about this? They're just simple common sense questions. And what I found is when I was asking uh, the surgeon, which is sort of the first person you see after you get a diagnosis, when I she recommended radiation, for example, and I, uh, you know, said, "Is there anything I can read on that?" And they said, "Well, that's just standard." And that was the you know the end of the discussion. So I tried to look up some other things about that, and I, I, when I looked up in the uh, medical literature, which is very easy for the average person to find on, on PubMed.net. It's the National Library of Medicine. Um, I, I knew they were going to be a little difficult to read, but I figured my life is at stake here. I think I should, you know, look at this stuff. So I went through it, and the last sentence of the the, the radiation summaries said, this does not offer any survival value. And I thought, well, then why are they giving it to me? Uh, and so I learned just to ask those kinds of questions. I, I learned there's some very basic questions you can ask. The first one being, before you ask anything else, is there any survival value to this? And is there any overall survival value uh, to this treatment? And sometimes they will just give the results for people dying of breast cancer, not dying of other things. For example, with radiation, it uh, rather if it's your right breast or left breast, it doesn't matter. There is an impact on the heart. So some people may not die of breast cancer, but they may die of cardiovascular disease. But anyway, I got I used that as an example because I went back to the doctor and said, you know, no, I'm not going to take this. This is, you know, there's just such a, there's a little local recurrence uh, benefit to radiation, but I'm not going to live any longer if if I take this. So then, you know, I was emboldened by my information, and I I started to look at absolutely everything they were doing, and I found there there was just not much 
benefit in most of the things that were recommended. So that's that's and I I just got as I say emboldened and it's something anybody can do if you're willing to ask your doctor where the her his or her information comes from. Yeah, that is pretty amazing because it is really very basic questions, but most people by the time they get diagnosed with breast cancer and given that label, they don't have the inner strength even to like ask basic questions. They are not raised. By culture, by culture or education to even have critical thinking or do their own research. They just accept, you know, what is being offered to them without, you know, any, you know, any questions at all. So do you have any recommendations for people that, you know, that are really programmed just to follow the line, so to speak, like, is there something that people could do just to realize that they could, you know, actually even ask that simple question of what is the survival rate for this? I think that's an important question you ask about culturally we're raised to just take what people say and it's rude to ask a doctor where does that information come from or what's the survival value of the treatment recommendation. But if you are shy about these kinds of things, and, and I don't blame anybody for, for being this way, uh, you can write it on a piece of paper um, and you know, almost have a script when you go in to see your doctor for recommendations. And say, say someone told me to get these answers. You, could, you, don't, you can say sort of, well, I wouldn't ask for myself, but my uncle Joe said to get this answer or something like that. You don't, so then you're not put on the spot. But your goal is to walk away from the appointment with something in writing that shows any recommendation has, you know, what the overall survival value is and what the benefit, you know, exactly what is the benefit of this particular treatment. Because I've, I've, I've been in situations where people that I've been in contact with say, well, I went to my doctor and and she said there was a 40% benefit. And I said, well, benefit, what does that mean exactly? It's specifics. Well, the person clearly walked out of the the meeting, the consultation, without having any idea what the benefit was because she didn't know to ask benefits. So if you make a little script for yourself, very short script, and ask the questions and say, you know, somebody told me to get this information during my research, and you let them understand, you let your physician understand you're researching this issue. You're not there just to take orders. Yeah, that's a good one. I like it. (laughs) I'm going to pass it around. It is incredible because it is, you know, as simple as that, but people don't realize it, you know, that they're entitled, you know, to have their questions and, you know, to have clarifications. And when people, even though as programmed as they are, realize that, Suddenly, it is a possibility. It is very empowering, you know. So I think, yes, that was a very important point that I wanted to bring up. But now... I think, Gabby, it is probably one of the most important points. If you're not going to get information from people, uh, you, you can't move forward with any sort of confidence. And one of the things that's brought up, people say, well, I'm going to get the surgery, and then I'll ask questions later. And then they wind up having their lymph nodes dissected as part of the surgery without knowing what the the, the value of getting lymph nodes 
is or how it will give information to the treatment. So that's that's the thing. One of the things that got me started out on researching breast cancer because the secretary in our college department had had her lymph nodes removed as a diagnostic procedure, and I mean you're re- removing you know something out of your armpit, you know next to your breast, and what happens is it has a 49% chance of giving you lymphedema, which is a lifelong, very crippling disease. And they did lymphedema, in the, they did lymph node surgery in the old days to decide which, which patients would have chemotherapy and which patients wouldn't. Mm-hmm. But now, even though we have these wonderful tests that show exactly what the tumor biology is, they're still doing, they're still removing the lymph nodes and it, it's completely unnecessary, has zero survival value. Even if you have cancer in those lymph nodes, it's not going to make you live a day longer. Now, this isn't something I make up. You know, I mean, this is not alternative medicine. This is just reviewing the conventional literature. Mm-hmm. But it's one of those things that's become customary, and this, the, the surgeon will say, well, it's just standard. That's what we do. But it's not beneficial. So those are the, you know, that's something to really look out for before anybody even gets into the surgery phase. Please research the surgery itself because it's not just a mastectomy or a lumpectomy, which is a smaller version. You just take a, a, essentially a, a large section around where the cancer is. They will also look at your lymph nodes, and and that's completely uh, it has no survival value whatsoever. And people say, I was just in a conversation with uh, somebody this morning, and they'll say, well, it makes sense to have the lymph nodes out if they have cancer. Well, you have to examine your premise then if you think that's going to help, because in this case, it, it doesn't doesn't help survival at all. Even though you're leaving some minuscule amount of cancer in your body, the lymph nodes are functioning in some way that don't make the cancer spread or don't contribute to your survival or lack of survival. Mm-hmm. And the downside is this terrible crippling lymphedema. If you get that, it's just awful. If you've ever had anybody in, <clears throat> in your family that's had it, you, you would know. Yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah, it is very important because most uh, most often, you know, I see people that go into these treatments these surgeries and they don't even know what the surgery consists. They just they're given the informed consent and they just want they just don't want to read it. But if they realize <laughs> how empowering it is just to find out, you know, even basic, you know, basic uh concepts, you know, they will you know, they will have a better prognosis in my point of view because um they will have a more inner power, you know, which is part of like the recovering process. It reminds me of a story that I read um, about a surgeon, you know, about uh, Bernie Siegel, you know, I don't know if you know him. He's the, yes. Author, yes. Yes. <laughs> the author of Love, Medicine and Miracles, who was saying how, you know, those patients with breast cancer that were giving a lot of trouble to the nurses, to the doctors, they had a better prognosis <laughs> And those who just went away, you know, went along, you know, and they were very, you know, compliant. They, the last ones had worse prognosis. So it's just yes, it's interesting. I know the study you're talking about. Um, doctors were 
cancer doctors were asked to rate their patients in terms of, um, you know, being nice uh, on a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being the nicest, 10 being uh, the pain in the ass patients. And the pain in the ass patients lived longer than the the obedient, uh, you know, how are you doctor type patients. So I, I think that there's something definitely to what Bernie Siegel says, that um, you know, once you take control, it, you have a, a much better advantage, not just emotionally and intellectually, but actually physically. If, if the pain in the ass patients, uh, the worst patients in terms of getting along with, if they survive longer. I mean, it's it's fascinating. Yeah, it is. It really is. I've noticed and that does, also. If I could jump in, notice that the the pain in the ass patients get the better care too, because they're totally on top of everything that's going on, and all of the nursing staff knows it. So they make sure that they are minding their p's and q's, and those pain in the ass patients do get the better care. You know, I think you're right because when I uh, went in uh, to have my biopsy, uh, I didn't want local anesthesia. I wanted uh, the equivalent of, of Novocaine, what they would give it in, in that in a local uh, context. And they just put up a terrible fight about this, and they brought the head of anesthesia down. And, and finally, I got what I want because they, what they I said, get me my clothes when they started to give me an argument about the local anesthesia versus the general anesthesia. I said, get me my clothes. Well, I immediately got the local anesthesia because they could see the operating room costs going out the window. My insurance company was going to pay for the doctor to uh, do this operation. That would have gone out the window. So you can get what you want if they know you're serious. And get me my clothes is one of those magic phrases that seems to get what they want. (laughs) Yeah. So, yes, certainly put more thought. Yes. I mean, you can be on a gurney being wheeled into the OR, and if you're not 100% sure of what you want and and communicating it and, and, you know, just turn around, threaten to just walk out, and it's amazing that what you can get. <laughs> yes. Speaking from the heart, literally. Yes. And tell us, Lynn. Why we don't know, well, aside from iodine researchers, why we don't know about iodine, practically nothing at all? <laughs> Do you have well, any idea? <laughs> yes, I, because, I was, because I was diagnosed with breast cancer and was looking for all sorts of uh, therapies that had been used in the past and, and just reviewing the literature, I would go to medical conferences and I, I ran into somebody, uh, Dr. Sherry Tenpenny, who said, have you looked at iodine uh, for the breast, and I said, "Well, I heard about it for fibrocystic breast disease, but I don't think that has anything to do with breast cancer." Well, all of a sudden, I, I was in a leap, and I thought, "Well, I'll look at this for a couple of weeks to, to see what she's talking about." And I, I looked at the conventional medical literature, and th- there was a lot on on iodine, and, and and so that sort of gave me confidence. You know, I was a huge skeptic about this, but my question was exactly yours, Gabby. Why don't we know about this? And then I found out after the two weeks turned into two months and two years uh, of research, and not just the medical literature anymore, I had gone back to actual medical textbooks and even into archaeologists 
and also anthropologists, all sorts of ways that I could document how iodine had been used. What I found out is that in, in, both in 1948 and 1961, there was an article published in, uh, by a, a, somebody from the National Cancer Institute, and he talked, it's called, now called the Wolf-Chaikoff effect. He said iodine shuts down the thyroid and essentially is poisonous to the body. And this, because it came from such an influential person, it was taken and taught in medical schools. And so well, most doctors are told that more than a milligram of iodine you know, could be lethal which is wrong. And what happened is the checks and balances in the medical literature is very poor. Uh, nobody replicated the study. There was a Chinese group that did, actually, and, and, but they, it didn't count because it, they thought it came from China. So, you know, like, what, what would they know? And so the, the poor Chinese article just, you know, got discarded. And the Wolf-Tycliffe effect, because of the influential researchers that wrote it, uh, became the dominant theory. So anybody who's in medical school now, or say not, since 1948, will have learned this this false information. So what I so that's why you don't know about it. But if if you if you go back before that and you look at the medical books, it's full. I mean, there's just thousands of medical books that talk about iodine, and it was a, you know a standard of care. It was in the Merck manual. It was in just there were medical conferences and, and uh, expos in England. So I was able to document this back at one time. There were 1,300 iodine formulations that were patented and used. But it's so quick, you know, we, his, we're not historically sensitive or aware uh, in our medicine. It's always what's the hot new thing in the paper. And Iodine got lost, and they, essentially, I say, who stole iodine? It was stolen by this, these, this publication and the reception of this publication, the Wolf Chaikoff publication. Hmm. So that was my job to, to. I felt as a detective, as a medical detective, I was going to go back and resurrect every way iodine had been used from as far off, you know, for as far back as I could chronicle. And in in my research, I thought wow, I got it back to the 1800s. This is wonderful. And then I realized, then I went back further and I realized that, that people had been burning sponges to get, because the sponges, I guess, a form of seaweed, and there was a lot of iodine in it. They would be using that for goiter, you know, for probably uh, since the Middle Ages. And then before that, the Egyptians used certain seaweeds for breast cancer. And then I found in the archaeology literature, they found it. Uh, a site, just uh, this is only a few years ago they found this site, but it had a medical, uh, the people in, in Lower Chile 15,000 years ago had a medical hut where their healer prepared various kinds of medicinal uh, seaweed products that, that were used and are still used in Chile in that area. So because of the indigenous people uh, would use it. So I, I, I just tracked this all back and it seemed to refute everything that we've been told about iodine. Huh, that's pretty amazing. And can you tell us some of the applications? Um, uh, what were I? What where was iodine being used? You know, in the past, you know, before the 1940s came and it was deleted from history. 
Well, you know, it, it, it's amazing. There, there's lists that are, are, you know, in the medical books, they would even inject it. If somebody had an ovarian cyst, for example, um, they would give them iodine, but they would also inject it right into, into the abdomen to try to give local access to the iodine. This is in, in the 1800s when, um, when iodine was like, it's like the golden age of iodine. Um, that was being used then. It was used for arthritis. It was used for obviously the breast. Uh, it was used for prostate disease. I even um, was able to get some uh, iodine suppositories that were used for benign uh, prostate disease and, and sold. Um, so, you know, this is very well documented. This isn't just here and there. People published beautifully in the 1800s and early 1900s. It was used for psoriasis, uh, varicose veins. It was used for libido. Uh, it was iodine was just the first go-to thing. If you, if you couldn't figure out was what was wrong with somebody, you know, you you try iodine. And there's there's even a in medical schools uh, 70 years ago they had a little poem. It, it, it boils down to if you don't know where and why, try the SKI, in other words, try iodine. Um, so, um, but those are those are some of the applications. Um, obviously, the, the the breasts, the prostate, the brain. I mean, we have to remember that iodine deficiency is the leading cause of mental retardation in the world, mm -hmm. uh, according to the World Health Organization. But even if, if it doesn't lead to mental retardation. Uh, you, I mean, just your cognitive abilities are so determined by the iodine in your brain, and and it, it's essential. I can see it in uh, even the adults around me that start taking iodine. They, they just are much quicker, mm. and uh, it, it works fairly quickly on the brain. Whereas other things like endometriosis and and ovarian cysts might take nine months or something. Mm. And what was your experience when you first started iodine? Why did you notice? Well, I had been taking a little bit of Lugol's um, for about a year, but for totally unrelated things. And I, and I really didn't understand what iodine was before I started researching. I thought it was something that was just kill bacteria, that was an antimicrobial. But then when I got started looking into it, I found there was an iodine loading test, which is a urine test that tests your iodine. And in order to take that test, you get up in the morning and you take 50 milligrams of iodine. Mm -hmm. So I took that and I expected nothing. And I was going to be in the house that day to collect urine. I expected nothing. And within an hour and a half, my brain just popped and we call it the boing because several other people have found the same thing. Not everybody, but I, I don't know whether it's you're so iodine deficient that it, it wakes you up first or whether the iodine goes to the place that needs it first. But I had had such terrible brain fog uh, during the course of, of my life, and especially in, in the last uh, the last 10 years before taking iodine, that this was a huge boost to me. Yeah. And uh, today, they said that we have a severe iodine deficiency. Can you tell us a little bit about the factors that, you know, that contribute to this? Yes, I'd, I'd be glad to. That's one of my favorite things because 
my book is based on what I call the perfect storm of iodine deficiency. And the reason we have such a huge iodine deficiency now that probably wasn't that bad 30 years ago is that iodine consumption is down by 50%. And, you know, why is it down? Well, it was removed from baked goods and flour goods that used to be fortified with uh, uh, potassium iodate, which is a form of iodine. And they took that out in the 70s and replaced it with in, in, in flour with something called uh, potassium bromate, which is a bromide, mm-hmm. and bromide and iodide are in the same family, and they compete with each other. So they're in the halogen family, and they compete with each other. So the, when the iodine was taken out, that was bad enough, but to add an anti-iodine fortification or a dough conditioner to to the flour, it does purge the iodine. So then you have, so you have this huge drop in iodine, and whatever iodine you have left from, say, seafood, uh, the the bromate in the in the flour is just going to purge it out. So there's two elements of the perfect storm: iodine is removed, and a bromate is added. So that brings the iodine in our diet and our nutritional availability way down. But at the same time, and this is a huge part, this is the third component of the perfect storm, is that bromide fire retardants and pesticides were introduced in the 70s as well. Mm -hmm. So you start, you know, year by year after that, you see the thyroid disease epidemic just shoots up in those 30 years. It's up 182%, that's thyroid cancer. Breast and prostate cancer are, are way up. Uh, that it went from in the 70s, one in 23 women might get breast cancer. Now it's like one in seven or one in eight, depending on your area. Mm-hmm. So this is something. It's like the underlying cause of iodine. Like iodine deficiency is an underlying cause of of many illnesses, but the underlying cause of the underlying cause is our bombardment with bromide in in, in the form of fire retardants and pesticides. It's in food too, but not that, not as much in, in food as as the bombardment with fire retardants and pesticides. I didn't knew how much this was a problem until I started iodine myself and started with severe detox symptoms, bromide detox symptoms. Can you tell us a little bit about these detox symptoms and how can we counteract them? Yes, the um, well, we have a group on Facebook called um, Iodine Workshop, and and that one of the main things we do there is for, if people become very sensitive to taking iodine and they get detox symptoms, the Iodine Workshop group will walk uh, people through how to deal with that. I do that in my book too, uh, but some people need some tweaking, so uh, the online and group is a big help. The first thing is to try to understand what's going on, that when you take iodine, you're blasting off this poison, the sedating poison off the receptors because they share a receptor with iodine. So the iodine is going to move the bromide into your bloodstream. And you might feel nothing, or you might feel sleepy or a little adrenaline rush, or you might get a headache, your nose might run, you might get itchy, that kind of thing. And there's several ways to, to attack the d- detox, and one of them is just the salt loading protocol, which is measuring a certain amount of salt into a certain amount of water and de- 
essentially trying to escort the bromide out of the body this way so it goes through the kidneys and urine and and you have uh, less uh bromide in your in your bloodstream you want to get that out as fast as possible we we have other ways you can do that too if if that doesn't work alka-seltzer gold uh you don't that's a rescue remedy you, you know you use when you just it, it, the detox is not working with uh, with the salt. Um, that helps as well. But we have to. People don't start low enough. Is is the general conclusion that I've read. I mean, some people can start at 50 milligrams and just do fine, have no symptoms whatsoever. But a lot of us, or they might do the first day 50, feel great, and take the second day, and all of a sudden not feel well. So the start low, go slow is, is what we suggest. And if you're getting symptoms, you're just taking too much. And, and it's, it's better, the strategy we found is better to sort of work up slowly if you get any effect whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Did, did, what, de, what detox effects did you have? Uh, well, I had uh, like a few strange people. They were not re- it was really acne-like. And mm-hmm. uh, that's where I knew that it was <laughs> that I had an issue with bromide, but also like mood changes. I was like a PMS and steroids. Mm-hmm. So yes, I increased my salt loading, but I was really surprised, you know, to see how like because I've been doing detox throughout the years with far infrared saunas, vitamin C, and I thought I had a good handle more or less <laughs> on it. But when it started like one single drop of Lugol, and it was a very low percentage of Lugol in the iodine, um, yes, I had these symptoms, and I was like, whoa. <laughs> yes, that, that's fairly common, and um, zinc may help. If, if, if you, the symptoms are, show up on your skin, zinc um, may help that too. I, I'm, I'm going to put that in the next revision of my book to try to add to to what we do for people who are just having problems uh, the dark moods uh, you know they can they can that's really a sign uh of 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 too much but it also can be a sign of iodine withdrawal if if and that doesn't sound like what was going on in your case like people will feel be feeling good for a couple of days and then they'll slow down and one of the things that people often do is put a dab of Lugol's on their thyroid. And if, if that works, if that pulls you out of the mood, then you know you're in withdrawal. It isn't necessarily detox. Mm. Well, I've had uh, symptoms too. I've had the back rash, the runny nose, the itchy eyes, that really irritable, irritable mood, uh, excessive urination, like that wasn't even helped with the salt water. But I noticed um, in the last few days I've tried the iodorol, the pills. Yes. And I noticed that uh, I don't have the the same symptoms as when I take the Lugols or the, the liquid iodine. Have you noticed, like, any difference between people taking the iodorol or the, the Lugols? Um, it seems gentler to me. Well, it it is digested at a different place, but I think that the strength is not always clear uh, what's in the tablets and what's in the liquid. Uh, You may be getting less iodine uh, if the iodorol are are one of the forms of iodine that's in the iodorol. Um, 
may be less. It, it may be more potassium iodide than iodine. Uh, it, it, it's hard, but go with whatever you can work up slowly with and you feel comfortable with. But yeah, people are, have favorites, uh, one over the other, but it's not clear why one is working. And then people just swear uh, by the, some people swear by the Lugols over the iodorol and vice versa. I've had muscle pain uh, in various portions of the body, mainly around the neck. Sorry, Erica, can you get closer oh. to the mic? Thank you. <laughs> yes. Um, muscle pain uh, in the neck mainly, uh, and then in the low back region. Would, would that be uh, a detox yes. symptom as well? Yes. Yeah, neck pain is one of the things that's come up. But also, I know when I first started, I started limping. And I didn't think it was in any way related. And I was even calling my neighbor who had just had a hip replacement. And I said, how fast did the arthritis in your hip come on? And uh, had no idea that there was a relationship. And for sure, you know, because I took a a two-day break and miraculously my hip pain um, went away. But, yeah, joint aches, that kind of thing. When it, it gets like that, you have to back off. It's well, just, what, you, you what don't a, want to infl- Go ahead, sorry. Go ahead. I, I wanted to bring up another thing that I noticed. Um, you said earlier that um, people co- people's cognitive abilities, they get a little sharper. I've noticed that um, I can remember names and numbers a little bit easier. Um, and a bunch of us in the house were taking it, and then we called it, we joked and called it hyodine because there was this... <laughs> This feeling like we were all super giddy at one point. Of course, it didn't last because the kind of depressive thoughts kicked in. But I wonder, is is the hyodine feeling like is that a, a, a detox symptom? No, I, I don't. I think it, you, it's a point in which you've blasted the bromide off the receptors, and the iodine is getting in. It may be, you know, transitory. The bromide might come roaring back, but if you get that sweet spot, but also name recall. Uh, Word retrieval, that kind of thing, is much has been reported uh, in many people. Uh, that, and also, you get impatient if you're around people that are not taking iodine because they can never remember people's names or places <laughs> or that kind of thing. Well, I, have a, yeah. I have a question on that um, as well. One of the symptoms I quit taking the iodine for a few weeks, and then I started again at five drops of the 12% Lugols, and I felt like I lost my memory completely. Would that be a... a yes. I had almost yeah, it, the exact opposite effect. Well, if you're, if, if you're blasting the bromide off the receptors and that gets in your bloodstream, you will feel sedated or uh, sad or just brain fog. Brain fog is one of the, the worst problems that well i personally found brain fog to be a terrible problem but yes that that that's that that's temporary and that should uh wear off or take the salt water and see how that goes mm-hmm. well in my case i've been in uh, with iodine since november you know and i'm going to a point where i have found that i do great with six drops uh this is three percent level every two days or every um, or every uh, one day yes, one day not, and so forth. 
And uh, I've noticed a lot of, you know, stability, emotional stability right now. And uh, we're only like a few months, you know, February. So I wanted to know if you have, you know, testimonials, like in your case, what happened after a few months in Google, you know, is it really getting better? It continues to get better and better. Yes, it, it gets better and better. And, and things, your body has to get used to it. Don't forget, you've been essentially on an iodine famine for years and years. And it's, it's a bounty when your body is finally get the, getting the nutrition that, that it needs. And you probably have done damage to organs as well. So that's, you know, you're going to try to repair damaged organs if they can, you know, be repaired. So, I mean, certain things, you know, like ovarian cysts or other things are, are going to take some time. But one of the things about your cognition and your emotional liability is, that uh, you will just you will begin to train your body as to what to expect, and the staggered doses that you suggest a day on a day off i 've also found that that 's very helpful mm-hmm. uh, previous to that we 'd said a pulse dose, which is five days on uh, two days off, and that 's been people almost feel euphoric when they go into the off days uh, that 's been reported, but also. It, but, but another set of people will go into withdrawal, uh, you know, like on, the, on the, the second day of the pulse dose where you're not taking anything, mm-hmm. and then they'll have to they'll, they'll change their mind and they'll go back on it. But your body will get trained to have a certain level of, of iodine and to understand that the iodine is there to stay, that it's not in a compensatory mechanism to try to balance expecting a famine around the corner, which you would expect people to do, you know, over the thousands of years. They, I mean, the thyroid gland is there to trap iodine, and uh, it will swell if it doesn't have enough iodine to create more tissue, to have more traps, essentially, as the blood flies through the thyroid gland, it will trap the iodine in the bloodstream. But so that's a good famine mechanism. Actually, you know, goiter is 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 a really great compensatory med- uh, method uh, for your body to conserve iodine. But it still doesn't. Your body really doesn't know that iodine is not just a tourist in in your thyroid gland. That it's, it, you're you're committed to sort of renourishing yourself and to getting completely stable. Mm-hmm. But is there? Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, Gabby. Uh, no, go ahead. Is there a saturation point that can be reached, uh, or are we just kind of doomed to be in a constant struggle with this, uh, with, with the pervasive bromide toxicity? Well, you're always going to be. Uh, there is a, there's a, a urine test that will measure saturation, but you're always going to be exposed, even if you're taking a lot of, you know, clean food and everything like that. Uh, you're going to be exposed to an anti-iodine, which is bromide, unfortunately, since the 1970s. So it's not like you can stop taking it any more than you can stop taking water. Mm. And the seas are a mess because of the dumping of the pesticides and oil spill cleanup chemicals and you know just all sorts of... Uh, chemicals that are in the sea that have that have started to get sucked up by the seaweed 
but there's no way around this. Uh, I, I mean, I'd, I'd like to say, well, the seas will clean themselves up and we won't have pesticides and fire retardants in, in, in the ocean. But it's, it doesn't look like it's going to happen in our lifetime. And, you know, to go back on your, your question, is there a point where you're perfectly fine? Uh, you will get to a point where you're, you know, you've been on it a couple of years and you're, you're confident or you're just experimenting with your dose. And, and and since you know that's an improvement, just this, my I, my feeling is that the main thing you want to do is try to get stable. But you have to be patient in your body's cycle and and the way it learns to just integrate iodine into every cell in your body. Mm-hmm. So I have another question. Oh, yeah. no, you go ahead. A few people reported um, kind of what would seem to be irregular weight gain. As a result of doing the iodine protocol after several months, is that something that you've uh, seen in your patients or people that you um, talk with on your forum? Yes, there. Uh, most people uh, t- you know, tend to lose weight as they go along, uh, but if you take too much too fast, you will, the, your body has a mechanism for storing toxins in the fat cells, and that's one of the things that we you know, try to work on is to get people not to, it's not a race. So if you're taking too much, you may gain weight. Only a small percentage of people gaining weight, uh, uh, you know, take too much iodine. But uh, you, you just you just have to go slower is the, is what I've seen is the only solution. Yeah, I think I experienced that when I was taking high doses. I had the excessive urination, but at the same time, like massive water retention. <laughs> yeah, it's like a barrel. I mean, I had it, I've had it too, where I try to go up. You know, even after all these years, I'll try to go up a little higher, and in two days, I have this barrel around my waist, <laughs> and, I, and then it, it takes some time, but it, it, it does go away. But it, your body is kicking and screaming. There's still bromide in there that uh, needs to get out. Some people have reported increased hunger too. Is that something that you found, Lynn? Um, I did, I have never. I'm always hungry anyway. So, um, <laughs> so I, but I haven't noticed any any difference in that. But you're right; it has been reported. Uh, basically, it's often reported on people who just start, mm-hmm. and your metabolism is revved up. If you know your your thyroid has been starving, and so your once it gets iodine, once it gets nourishment, your whole metabolism speeds up. So it may be something like that people even people on uh, thyroid hormones which are doing nothing for them uh they take iodine and all of a sudden you know the metabolism works the way it should work um but so that that might be so it's also you have to watch it with some people because the metabolism goes up uh their ferritin levels drop and they have to take something called fluoridex which you know to try to get their iron back if if, if it's proved to be deficient um, but, you know, a lot of these are, are just the shock that you're putting your body into with this bounty of nutrition. Interesting. Yeah, I also gained a little bit of weight, but I realized that, you know, I felt like it was water retention, like I was, like, you know, releasing a lot of toxins. And um, I was also wondering, it, it will be normal for a person to report that they are still having a lot of detox symptoms after, like, a year? Could it be? 
if, if they're still having detox symptoms after a year or even a month, they shouldn't. They they're taking too much. Mm-hmm. Um, you should. We find that you can build building up slowly is the best way. Rather, mm-hmm. but some people just start out fine and don't notice anything, and we don't know whether the iodine is washing right through them. That's why they don't notice anything, or they don't get detox, or they're just they have just incredible. Uh, compensation mechanisms that they don't report any uh, depression or acne or runny nose or something like that. But you you should try, as soon as you feel any detox, that's when you slow down. And some people can't even take a drop of Lugol's. And one of the ways that uh, I found with our patients in the the breast cancer uh, research group that that, uh, we run is to put the iodine on the heel put a, a drop of Lugol's on the heel, uh, the toughest skin, and we call that heel dosing. And that seems to slow down the entry of iodine into the cells. And, I mean, you can't put too much. You have to, you know, take, you know, very little or dilute the iodine uh, with 10 drops of water or something like that and see how that works. It's surprising uh, how, how beneficial that's been. Now, you'll hear a myth that because there was a study out there that iodine is not really absorbed through the skin. It is. I mean, we've had so many people report back that that, that how effective it's been. Uh, I mean, one of the, the people was a 30-year-old woman who had three children, and she would just fall asleep when she got home from work, and her husband would make the, you know, the meals for the kids and everything. And she was just using it on her heels, and all of a sudden, she just sprang up and became a normal person and had the energy to to make meals and, and help with the household responsibilities. So that's something you might try uh, as an alternative to taking the Lugol's or the Iodorol by mouth. That's good to know. Yeah, I saw that on your website, lynnfarrell.net. So to all our listeners, if you want to try the heel, the heel iodine, it's on that website. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, there's a little picture there. Yeah, that that whole formula. It's uh, yeah, lindfarrow.net slash heel dosing, I believe, is, is the um, is the URL. But just look around the site and and, and you'll find it. Check it out. Uh, on our forum, we have had people uh, reporting mercury detox. Um, have you had, you know, reports similar to that, like people who know who have issues with heavy metal, any heavy metal, and they start iodine and suddenly they start dumping a lot of heavy metals? Or Well, yeah. well I haven't done the re- any research uh, or seen any reports of that among uh, our people, but we don't really ask about that too much. And one of the ways it's measured they historically and, and and Dr. Abraham has has reported on this that when you take iodine, heavy metals and lead and so forth are excreted in the stool. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, that may be helpful to people that are always, that are also working on mercury issues. Mm-hmm. Okay. Do you have testimonials that uh, that come to your mind right now? that will, you know, give an idea to people how useful iodine is? Uh, yes, I I have a, a number. Um, uh, one of the, the two, the, the two people both had the same thing, one man, one a woman, uh, with atrial fib. 
uh, atrial fibrillation is something where the heart gets a particular kind of arrhythmia, and you're given a lot of medicine for this. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've had, you know, reports on this. That were, the, the woman who did it uh, actually has gone off all cardiac medications with her doctor's blessing. And it, it makes you think, and she raised this, well, maybe there was nothing wrong with my heart. Maybe it was just you know, a deficiency rather than something that's anatomical or, or inherently physiological. And, and so that's how, you know, we've had that. I, I find that to be an excellent report. And, and these are just people that have contacted me. Of course, people that read my book may not contact me mm-hmm. or report to the iodine workshop group. So we know that there must be more people out there. Also, historically, uh there's there's a lot of uh, documentation for iodine as a cardiac um, medication or a, a therapy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I have on my site, um, it's linfarrow.net slash mental health. A psychologist in Alaska kept falling asleep. Uh, and, and she would even fall asleep while she was you know, counseling her patients. And she took Ritalin, she ate coffee beans, she took thyroid medicine, and nothing uh, helped. And she finally tried iodine, and it's really changed her life. And she you know, wrote me, and she wanted to use her, her real name and put it on the web and stuff like that. But I said, no, everyone will be contacting you. <laughs> but she was a, a great testimonial because it, 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 here she she's a mental health specialist, and it profoundly helped her. And we've had a, a number of reports. Uh, we have a novelist, a mystery novelist on our group, and she just was incredibly depressed, and she tried iodine, and she, you know, was having trouble writing, and and she ha- and she cried every day, and then she started taking iodine, and she hasn't cried since, except at her father's funeral. So um, we just don't really understand, you know, what does it affect the brain? Does it ex- affect the thyroid that affects the brain? But we just know that the outcome is excellent in terms of people's moods. Uh, improving. And then, because I deal with breast cancer patients, uh, this has come up a number of times, uh, breast cancer patients will take it to try to prevent recurrence, or the, or if they just have fibrocystic breast disease, they'll, they'll take it and they'll say, what happened to my psoriasis? Uh, because they've had psoriasis since they were 13, and all of a sudden that disappears. So that's a benefit your listeners should you know because it's such a such a maddening thing to try to cope with. Uh, another story uh, is uh, a couple of people have reported a benign prostate disease has been improved. Uh, three months it was you know incredibly improved with only waking up fewer times during the night and then by uh, 12 months it, it was completely gone. There was no waking up. Uh, during the middle of the night to pee. So, and that this has been used for years for this, but now we're getting current reports with people taking Lugol's and Iodorol, and this is the benefits. And of course, these men are ecstatic. So I don't have I have more. I could just go on and on um, about the different things about people getting their singing voices improved that have lost you know their voice. Um, men using it for libido, it raises testosterone. It, it, it alters all the hormones and the hormone receptors. It sort of balances them. Wow. And then there was a single 
woman, uh, 24, who you know should have been out dating and having fun, and she was depressed and lethargic, and she just watched TV every night. And she just noticed that her doctor, the doctor she worked for, uh, in, in the office was prescribing a lot of iodine. So without telling anybody, she tried it. And I don't even think she did the whole protocol, but as she put it, whatever was wrong with me, iodine fixed. So it's made mm-hmm. this poor girl who was like a wallflower suddenly come out and be an active 24-year-old. Mm-hmm. But then there's I have hundreds and hundreds of breast testimonials where people have had fibrocystic breast disease for years and years and you know to the point they were considering a mastectomy that was that painful Uh, and people have had them I ran into a woman who did have a subcutaneous mastectomy where they just sucked out all the glandular tissue out of her breast because she couldn't stand uh, the pain anymore Mm -hmm. but so that we have a huge you know benefit for that and, and and the results are, are are great with that. But also, people that have uh, calcifications, which may be precancerous, we've had results with, you know, that, those going away and, and being documented. Wow. Now I can go on and on, but I mean, this is only <laughs> the show isn't that long. <laughs> I think Chitani had a question. Oh, I was going to ask uh, if any of the the testimonials you have speak about uh, fatty lipomas or sebaceous cysts going away when they take yes. iodine? Any, yes, uh, sebaceous cysts, uh, dermoid cysts, that kind of thing, yes. Uh-huh. Uh, matter of fact, I had one of those on my waist and it went away. And I just noticed it wasn't there, that kind of thing. Wow. And uh, allergies, that's one of my favorite things because every spring I would get allergies. Uh, that just disappeared. You know, I don't lose the month of May anymore. And uh, food sensitivities, not being allergic to the certain foods that I, I just couldn't eat. They're they're totally gone now. Herpes outbreaks have have uh, people have written to me saying that they're they haven't had a herpes outbreak since they were on iodine. Uh, lung conditions. Uh, I know there there's another uh, in the 1800s. Uh, uh, iodine books were written about just iodine in the lungs because there was a lot of lung disease during uh, that time. But we've also had people get pregnant uh, on iodine that have been, you know, where they were ready to go to have uh, fertility treatments and they were going to just try one last thing and then they did and and their hormones stabilized and and they were able to uh, get pregnant. So those and then of course type D, di, uh, type two diabetes. Mm-hmm. Uh, even Dr. Flesh has had a patient who, uh, he's one of the major iodine doctors, who walked into his office, the blood sugar was crazy high. I think she even went into the hospital, got it regulated, and then went on iodine at the same time and gradually went off insulin because of uh, her blood sugar just got lower and lower and lower uh, taking the iodine. That's amazing. Without, I imagine that without doing any special diet, it was just the iodine. Yeah, she didn't. She didn't even do the protocol, you know, because we have a whole protocol. You take companion nutrients with it. Uh, it was just one of those things that, uh, you know, she just. They, even Dr. Fleshes was surprised because she was, you know, she was capable of, of 
lowering her insulin level so much to nothing uh, uh, because she was just following her, her blood sugar. But also there was somebody from India who wrote me and said his mother-in-law was taking iodine and something fell out of her ears, like little bones, he said, and uh, that she started hearing again. And I thought, this is, you know, this must be, this is crazy. But then I looked it up and I found out that that had been used in, in the 1800s and there's a name for that particular ear problem. But, uh you know, I have I have the information, so you know to to back it up. To you know, I'm not saying it's going to help every ear problem, but this particular kind that she had benefited from it. I know, you know, one of the problems with talking about iodine and the benefit is you begin to sound like a crackpot, or that that iodine is kind of the lords of medicine. Uh, but if, if iodine is such a vital nutrient and your body has been in a terrible famine for 30 or more years, uh, it's, it's not unlikely that it will help many things. It's just because the iodine is in every cell in your body. It's going to help a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. Dr. Farrell, yeah. I have a question about um, cancer. I was curious if you're familiar with the Italian oncologist uh, Tullio Simoncini, who... Yes has treated melanoma with cancer, and uh, he, I believe, he also speaks to the idea of cancer being uh, a fungus at, it, at its root, um, and, and that is part of the reason why iodine works on cancerous cells, and I wonder what your, uh, what your opinion is on that. Well, cancer is a fungicide, to, you know, and it works on many different levels and antimicrobial levels. I don't know whether that's the action. I mean, he's gotten benefits from using iodine. I've seen his videos and on the Internet. Uh, when you have outcomes that are dramatic like this, it's, it's very hard to explain what in what you gave the person, say iodine, whether it was the antifungal aspect or it was some other uh, activity on the cells. Since we know uh, iodine, how it works because of the researchers in Mexico that have done, uh, have studied this for years, actually how the, the line of, of action on the cells, it, it alters cells in, in like five different ways. Um, so whether that affects the fungus or whether it has nothing to do with the fungus would be very hard to de uh, de determine just by casually coming up with that explanation. Mm -hmm. But I think it should be studied for sure if he's getting that kind of, um, even in the test tube, if they could put melanoma cells in a test tube with iodine and then look at what the action is, uh, he could establish that. Sure. He's had amazing results and even to the point of where the, uh, the skin becomes completely clear. There's not even any scarring left. This, well, there, there is a lot of uh, information about iodine on scar tissue. Uh, people have taken pictures. Um, they you know, have a scar on their chest from an operation or something, and they'll apply iodine twice a day and then just take pictures, which I always encourage people to take pictures of everything and anything when, when they, before they start because you're not going to have any proof that it happened in, in, until you show your pictures before and after. 
but so yeah so that's another see that's another mechanism of action that may be at work too is that not only is it was Dr. Simoncini able to get rid of the cancer, but another level of action may be working on the scar tissue. Hmm. See, we know the outcome, but we don't know the mechanism of action, except, hmm. as I say, the, the, the researchers in Mexico that have looked exactly what happens to the cells in their studies. Lynn, do you know of people with multiple sclerosis who benefited with iodine? Yes, uh, and I can't, I, I've gotten uh, emails from people, and it, it doesn't cure the uh, multiple sclerosis uh, as much as it, it seems, it, I, I could draw this inference, is that people with multiple sclerosis have many other things going on, and if you can make their life easier by reducing the other burden of disease or injury or disorders that are going on, it really helps their quality of life. Mm -hmm. And we've had people, mothers with, of, of children with Down syndrome have emailed me, uh, ADD uh, kids, autistic uh, kids, um, their, their parents have written me. And it, it, the thing that comes up all the time with the ADD and the autistic kids is the ability of iodine to let the kids focus better. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they can dance with their parents or they can, uh, they can just think more clearly. And one of the kids who had a, a, a disability I put it in, he was so articulate about this, and most of us that have all our marbles didn't think about it this way. He said... He, the difference he felt on taking iodine was it was like having a radio dial, and it wasn't when the dial isn't right on the station. Things are sort of fur, furry sounding and blurry and not clear. And and he said when it's when I have my iodine right, it's like getting the radio dial right on the station. Yeah. And I thought, yeah, that's what I feel like too. But I never yeah. thought to put it. <laughs> <laughs> Me too, actually. <laughs> yeah. So the fact that this kid was able to explain this—this this is a kid with a, you know a profound a chromosomal abnormality—was able to improve. And you, obviously, you can't improve the chromosomes, but you can improve the terrain in which any anomaly, health anomaly, functions. And that's why you know the outcome is to me more important than the mechanism of action. Okay. But it's certainly worth a try with, with you know, these kids. Yeah. What about and, people who've had Graves' disease and had their thyroids irradiated out? Um, have you had any experience with people who've taken iodine who've had Graves' disease? And if if they have, does it cause any kind of reversal to, I forget the name of those um or the eyes bulge out a little bit? Yes, and, and uh, Dr. David Brownstein's book, he uh, has pictures of a report from the, a person with Graves' disease because your eyes bulge out sometimes, and they there's a, there's a specific name from that. I can't think of the name of it, but uh, she, he actually got a report back from a woman who whose Graves' disease was corrected, and her eye condition was also corrected. Wow. And I, in my office, I have textbooks from the 1950s, you know, like Harvard University Press, on how they uh, treated Graves' disease with iodine. Oh. Uh, that being said, I, I would go really slowly uh, 
with iodine uh, on anybody with Graves' disease. Uh, just because you know Graves' disease is much more disturbing to people than being hypothyroid. Mm-hmm. But it, it certainly there's a, there's a long record of its use. Um, I think the iodine doctors use uh, L-carnitine and a small amount of lithium with uh, as part of the Graves protocol. But you know, they really well, but- you need an iodine literate doctor to do to, to to be very careful with that. Mm-hmm. Well, this particular person I'm thinking of, it's been like 20 plus years since she had her, her, her radiation treatment for her thyroid. So is there any special precautions in that situation, or they should still, you know, go? You know, I don't, I don't really know the answer to that. Though we do have a lot of people that have had their thyroids completely radiated and uh, are taking iodine very happily. But uh, I, I really don't know. The, you know, every case is different. I'm not a physician, so I, I can't make recommendations about what she should do. But if, if she contacts other Graves people. Um, that have taken iodine, that might give her some clues. That's why I, I always urge people to go on Iodine Workshop on Facebook to try to, you know, find somebody who has your situation and, and how it worked out. And network about it. And uh, what the protocol looks like so people can have an idea. Um, yes, you wrote a wonderful article by, about that, by the way. Thank you, Gabby. Um <laughs> Uh, um, well, it's a, basically you start out with, you know, the low-dose iodine and try to work up to 50 milligrams. But you also, it, we found it's beneficial to take with that vitamin C, magnesium, uh, selenium, especially if people have Hashimoto's, um, and, 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 and basically work with there. With the, the B2 and B3 helps a, a lot. Uh, we're thinking of adding zinc to that regimen, um, you know, we're doing a research project right now, mm-hmm. uh, seeing if if zinc would be helpful to the whole regimen. But, but the, the thing is, you can have a list of different things to take in, in this so-called protocol, but unless you know how to use those things, you can get into trouble. And, and that's why we, you might not, I mean, you might do fine just taking some iodine, but if you get detox and you think, you know, something bad is going on. It's really helpful to be in a group where people that have been doing this for 10 years mm-hmm. uh, can walk you through it. Mm-hmm. Uh, people have said, you know, from just even taking the Alka-Seltzer Gold, they'll get themselves in trouble to get a headache or migraine or something. But they take the Alka-Seltzer Gold and that, you know, re- relieves the system um, of the acidic burden. And if, if you're not in a group where people are experienced at seeing these things every day for years, you're not going to get the help. And the reason for being in a group and for starting low is that when I first started this uh, this project, I remember a woman who was a nurse who has, hadn't been able to hug somebody since she was 13 because she had such breast pain and her mother had had breast cancer. Well, she started iodine, immediately got a rash, the rash wouldn't go away. She couldn't even take, even when she stopped, she couldn't take a, a multivitamin that had iodine in it. And so we lost her uh, to iodine. This is a person who really needed the iodine, but she, at that time, we didn't know enough and there weren't enough people around that will walk you through taking iodine. We don't want to just lose people that, for a nutrient that, that can be life-saving. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. 
Well, thank you, Lynn, very much for all the information you have shared with us. I really encourage people to read uh, Lynn's book, The Iodine Crisis, What You Don't Know About Iodine Can Wreck Your Life, and to check out the website. So we have several websites. Uh, we have lynnfarrow.net. We have uh, breastcancerchoices.org. And we have iodineresearch.com. Is that right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> there is a lot of information there for beginners, for professionals, for, you know, breastcancerchoices.org. I found that website very impressive, you know, for anybody who is struggling with that disease, with that label. You know, there is hope and there is a way to network. And um, it was a great pleasure to have you here. Well, thank you. It's it's been very helpful to talk to you and and and, and the team there because they're already so knowledgeable. Uh, you know, ask great questions. <laughs> yes, we really love your book uh, because it has a lot of testimonials, frequently asked questions, and you can tell that you know it's um, a protocol or information shared from a lot of experience. And that is one of the most important things that on these uh, iodine experiments, you know, you know, experience and networking. So, yeah, I thought it was really great. I think everybody should read it. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. It was written because nobody else had written it. Uh, and I, I wanted to get the information out there. And it's a movement. This is a, a passion of my life because I've seen such benefits from it. And I just hope everybody you know, learns about iodine one way or the other. And so I appreciate you doing the show today. Thank you, Lynn. It was a pleasure. We'll let you go now. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. So that was our interview with Lynn Farrell from last week. Quite fascinating. I mean, there's there's a lot of stuff in there, and you know, just hours and hours, uh, days, you know, of research that you can do on this topic. Really excellent interview. Yeah, it was great, and I liked that she kept stressing, like to go start slow and go start low and go slow. And if you experience detox symptoms, that means you're probably taking too much. Yeah, I think that's important yeah. because I know um, in reading uh, Dr. Brownstein's book, he he does kind of talk about taking the uh, you know uh, ten drops of the five percent solution as as kind of the standard. So I when I started, I I went right to that. And it was really a, a case of going too fast. Um, I started to develop a lot of symptoms. So I think, you know, her emphasis here on, you know, you, you want to start slow. Like, don't uh, don't just, you know, go gung-ho all of a sudden. Like, I think uh, the the adage that it's a marathon, not a race, you know, don't, uh, don't, don't go faster than you uh, have the ability to handle. Yeah, that is really important advice. I can attest to that too. I know I've, I've mentioned this in the past on the show, but uh, at one point last year, I, I went whole hog trying to do some sort of, you know, an antifungal thing, but um, I was taking iodine and oregano oil internally at the same time uh, and too much and killed off all of my gut flora and just had an awful month. I mean, depression, lack of sleep, hives, just crazy, crazy detox symptoms. And that was my fault, you know, for taking it too far. Um, 
Mm-hmm. So it, it's really, really important, like, when you get into health stuff like this uh, and you're, you know, not necessarily experimenting with, but you're, you know, you're trying new protocols on your own body, like take it slow, start slow, watch the symptoms really closely, uh, you know, and make sure that you don't overdo it. Yeah. You know, I think, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. No, there was also a follow-up from Lean after the show. She wanted to add something about the neck pain question. I think that Erica asked, and she said that niacin is often a cause of neck pain in some people, and it's listed as one of the adverse effects. Some people have to stop and build up slowly on niacin as well. So it is also like a trial and error process. It, it could not only be the iodine, it could be, one, you know, in this case, the niacin. I do believe that niacin and meat has less problems in that respect, but, you know, something to keep in mind. Yeah. Now, I was just going to say that I, I think um, in a lot of cases, people don't kind of realize how much toxic buildup they have. Um, you know, y- your body has a way of kind of uh, dealing with what it's got and making uh, making the best with what what it can. So, I mean, I know in my personal situation, I, I basically was thinking, nah, you know, I don't have any toxicity. I can just, like, jump right in. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, in this day and age, everybody has some kind of toxic buildup. So there's always a chance that you're going to have some reactions. You probably will. Not everybody does, obviously, but uh, but I think, uh, you know, you can't really just look at, at the state that you're in right now and, and think, no, I'm fine. Um, I can I can jump right in on this. You really, you, 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 it's really important to just start slowly for everybody. I think there is a very common uh, mistake or problem in our forum. Uh, a lot of people have detox symptoms, and instead of slowing down or taking like even one single day of a break, they keep pushing forward. So that's something to highlight. You know, slowly but surely also does it. Mm-hmm. And also how she stated that it is a, it's like a lifetime practice, kind of what we shared about the diet, you know, that it's, it's with the, all the pesticides and flame retardants and the pollution that even if we think we're not that toxic, you know, that it, it could, you can be bombarded just where you are physically in an environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I thought that was a really interesting point uh, too, that, you know, um, we're not in a, a world where, you know, you can just bring yourself up to an acceptable level of iodine and then you're good. You know, we are constantly mm-hmm. battling uh, environmental toxins, um, bad foods. Even if you correct the diet, you know, there are things that get into everything that you eat. Um, uh, but mostly I would think the, the influences of, uh, you know, environmental toxins, uh, absorption through the, through the lungs and through the skin, um, and you know, would that we lived in a in a perfect world uh, where we didn't have to worry about this kind of stuff, but we do, and that's where we are. So, you know, you just need to um, you need to maintain your health. You can't just fix it and be done with it. Mm-hmm. We are very thankful that something as iodine exists for this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I also thought it was good that she brought up the importance of networking with other people and not trying to go through it yourself. Um, it's good that on her Facebook group, people have been doing it for 10 years or so. So even if our forum members wanted to pop onto that group and see, I know we're all fairly new to trying this iodine, but eventually we'll become <laughs> a lot more well-versed in 
you know, what to look out for, but networking is really, really important. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And speaking of that, too, I noticed recently, you know, on the forum, uh, especially in the discussion thread about iodine, uh, it has come up that, uh, you know, the seemingly obvious fact that everybody is different, um, but it, it needs yeah. to be reiterated that, that every person's physiology and biology is unique. Uh, and so there is not one protocol that will work for everyone. Like you really need to, first of all, very closely and carefully watch yourself and how your body is reacting to what you're doing. Um, second of all, get the test done, you know, which I, I admit I haven't done yet. And I've, uh, we've been looking into doing that here during the, uh, the iodine floating uh, urine test, urinalysis, where you have to send in a sample. Um, you know, but the, those things are uh, important to do so that you know where you're at. Uh, you know, otherwise you run the risk of uh, either taking it too far or doing the wrong thing and throwing your body uh, the balance of, of nutrients and hormones out of whack. And then, you know, they, it, mm-hmm. sure, you know, in certain cases it can be life-threatening. I think that in most cases it's basically just threatening to your well-being. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you you have you have a job or you may have children or you know responsibilities in your life, and uh, you can't just take a a month off to detox mm-hmm. and, you know, have the flu every day. And also yeah. not losing people to iodine, like she spoke about, you know, if people are doing this alone and they have the symptoms like the woman she mentioned, and then they just stop doing it because, you know, the, it's too overwhelming or intense, you know, you don't want to give up. It could be, yeah, it could be tempting, you know, to go very quickly and take a lot because it's going to heal me and all of that. But yes, considering the experience, you know, that, you know, these people, uh, Lynn's experience covers like plus 10 years of research and testimonials. It does favor the slow approach. And, uh, and yes, like most of us are really like cannot afford a month off, you know, and we have to be up and running, so to speak. So, but it is, it is doable. I think that's, that has been my experience. I have not missed a day from work, even though I had very um, very pronounced detox symptoms with one single drop. Yeah, just like, okay, I'm stopping this for two days, <laughs> and then I'm going to take it again. And a lot of salt, uh, the salt loading protocol, it can be started even two weeks before, you know, before you start the iodine. That will help you with the detox symptoms. Well, um, I don't know if you guys have anything else to uh, to add right now. I didn't see any pronounced uh, questions in the, the chat that we would need to address. Um, so I think uh, if everybody's good for the time being, we will go to Zoya's uh, pet health segment for today. Um, Zoya prepared a segment for today's show. And uh, when we come back, we will do a, uh, a recipe on how to make your own uh, Lugol's solution iodine so that will be our recipe for today um so we will be back uh, right after this hello and welcome to the pet health segment of the health and wellness show my name is zoya and today i would like to talk to you about procedures at the clinic Often veterinarians uh, hear people complaining about the prices, sometimes outrageous prices, 
some of the complaints are justified and some of them uh, come from lack of understanding of what they entail or include. So in this segment, I will uh, try to shed a bit of light on the topic. First of all, let's talk about necessary and unnecessary costs. The bottom line is that each animal is different, and it largely depends not only on breed, uh, meaning various predispositions, genetic factors, etc., but also uh, nutrition, general upkeep, and also other perhaps emergency situations. Uh, just like with humans, anything can happen uh, with our animals. Uh, we just need to be aware of it and take appropriate uh, steps to minimize any possible consequences. For example, improper nutrition uh, of dry food for cats can lead later, uh, to, a, for example, to a chronic kidney disease. But also improper nutrition of raw food can lead to various um, uh, disbalances too. Uh, there are a lot of examples for dogs, too, uh, in, including, for example, gastric dilatation in some large breeds like German Shepherd, etc. So some veterinarian visits are unavoidable. Even if your pet appears to be healthy, it's always uh, wise to do routine checkups, especially if you know that uh, they are predisposed to something. But if everything is okay, no need to do it uh, often. Now about vaccinations. In several previous shows, I already talked about uh, the topic of vaccinations and that annual vaccination uh, is a racket. And many clinics, uh, basically in many clinics, it constitutes as a large portion of their profits. So this is where you could be a smarter owner and don't fall for this kind of extortion. And it's possible, if it's possible in your country, ask for a tighter test. It may cost the same as the vaccine, but at least uh, excessive vaccination, but at least you will avoid the complications that come with excessive vaccination. And uh, you will avoid uh, possible future problems. Uh, so basically it may be cost effective in the long run. Another area is dermatology. There is a well-known notion among veterinarians that uh, dermatologists can be the wealthiest doctors uh, because they will never run out of patients and also because you can never completely heal dermatological problem, but you can only control the symptoms. So as you can see, um, if your dog has skin problems, then it can lead not only to a great misery for the dog, but also, but also uh, to a large hole in your pocket. Some skin diseases are allergic, like atopic dermatitis, and some are caused by mites, like sarcoptosis. Some are hard to prevent, uh, even with good nutrition and upkeep, but the general rule of thumb that a pet uh, with good immune system has much less chances of having a serious dermatologic problem, meaning that if you will make sure to do your best, um, you may lessen the chances of inflammation in, the, in your dog, and then it may improve uh, further general chances of their recovery or not getting the dermatological uh, problem at all. There are a lot of other areas, like dentistry, 
where proper nutrition and upkeep are interconnected. And if you make sure to educate yourself on those topics, it may greatly lessen the costs. Uh, when it comes to dentistry, you also need to remember that animals similar to humans, and if they have a foul smell from their mouth and their teeth are yellow and don't look good, imagine a human with such condition and think um, if it sounds right to you. So in such a case, a visit to a veterinarian is warranted. And your pet's health uh, should, your pet's teeth should be cleaned, unavoidably uh, under anesthesia. And uh, this has its own uh, nuances, risks, and repercussions, including in the pocket. So many pet owners are weary of anesthesia, and it's true that it carries some risks, but sometimes the risks are negligible especially if done properly and with constant monitoring. Uh, sometimes uh, the risks can be greater when a pet has a heart condition or senior pets, for example. I think that at this point and before I will go, uh, go on to explain uh, to you what are the main differences between costs in a large and technologically equipped clinic, so to say, and simple spay-neuter uh, clinic. It's important to know that many, if not most, veterinarians try to do their best, uh, try to do their job as best as they can. They love their job, and it's important to them that your pet will receive the best care they can provide. Sometimes veterinarians can be ignorant, like with the topic uh, of vaccinations, and some of them, or nutrition. And some of them indeed can be greedy, um, but uh, many of them also have no, not much choice because they have to adhere to the policy of the clinic where they are working. But most of them do try to take into account that not many people nowadays can afford the full range of affordable services. And that's why many pet owners choose to go to a simple clinic uh, that will take only, for example, $50 uh, for a spay instead of uh, $400 in a larger clinic. Uh, when it comes to operations, I'm not going to tell you what is best, of course. you can, uh, If you can afford it, then the most expensive option is more secure. But I also saw the work in simpler clinics, and the procedure could be done successfully just as well. Basically, you need to be aware of all the facts and then to make an educated decision. So here are all the possible factors that, can, may, that may influence the cost of the surgery. Factor number one is that low-cost clinics do not typically require or offer blood work before surgery. One main reason for this is because most young, healthy animals do not have an underlying metabolic issues, but there are always exceptions. If the clinic provides a blood work option, uh, your cost will go up. But if you decline uh, the blood work or if the clinic doesn't offer it, if your pet has an underlying medical issue, or liver or kidney disease, bleeding disorder, etc., uh, the vet and staff uh, will not know, and the risks for surgical and post-op complications will go up. 
or your pet may die. Blood work helps your vet and staff know the, what risks are present, what anal, um, anesthetic drugs to use, or whether your pet can even safely have surgery. Factor number two is that low-cost clinics do not usually place an IV catheter or give intravenous fluids to your pet during surgery. One of the reasons for this is that uh, most high-volume spay-neuter veterinarians are able to perform surgery in a fraction of, it, of the time of many others, uh, often less than 5-10 minutes, simply due to experience. But why uh, might an IV catheter and fluids be important? Fluids provide assistance with blood pressure, stability, uh, and perfusion to organs. If your pet has trouble with blood pressure, uh, decreased perfusion to important organs, it may cause them to fail, uh, typically not seen for days or weeks after your pet goes home. Most young, healthy animals will not have this problem, and typically the surgery is quick, but not always. If your hospital provides this, your cost will go up. Uh, factor number three, that low-cost clinics have limited staffing and cannot provide constant attention to your pet before, during, and after surgery. There are often only one or two veterinary technicians or assistants or on, staff, on staff during a typical surgery day, and they are commonly multitasking. The most consistent time there are complications or accidental death is right after surgery in recovery. This is true for any hospital or clinic. If your pet is not directly monitored by a technician at all times, uh, if they have any difficulty in surgery or recovery, it is possible that a minute or two or more may go without the difficulty being noticed. This is not intentional, of course. It has to do with the number of staff available. If a hospital provides constant nursing care and monitoring for your pet, your cost naturally will go up. Uh, factor number four is that low-cost uh, clinics do not routinely monitor CO2 levels, ECDG, uh, blood pressure, and constant body temperature for your pet during surgery. A pulse oximeter is usually the only monitoring device present, uh, revealing heart rate and oxygen perfusion in the blood, which are important. And sometimes there isn't even a pulse oximeter. But other vital signs can be important too. Hypothermia can make recovery long and difficult. ECG readings can, may help uh, determine any heart abnormalities. Abnormal CO2 levels can be deadly. Again, the most common reason for not monitoring uh, these things is that the surgery is often less than 5-10 minutes, so significant changes are unlikely in young, healthy animals. If your hospital provides these other monitoring devices, the equipment costs money, and the trained, certified staff member must be paid to be there. Use them and know how to manage any complications. So that also causes your cost to go up. Uh, factor number five, uh, low-cost clinics do not provide a full comprehensive physical exam and vet consultation for your pet before surgery. Exams are limited due to number of surgeries that must be performed in a day. You do not have an opportunity to discuss your pet's health and concerns with the vet before the surgery is performed. There may be an area on your drop-off sheet where you can write your concerns. However, you likely never see or meet your veterinarian. 
if your hospital provides time and opportunity for a comprehensive exam and discussion with your vet, uh, then it can also influence your cost naturally. And uh, factor number six is that uh, low-cost clinics are not the best option for higher-risk pets. Large and giant breed dogs, senior pets, uh, brachycephalic breeds, those with flat smashed faces, obese in heat, pregnant and aggressive dogs and cats, those with a history of medical issues, etc. Low-cost clinics are not typically set up to handle emergencies if they arise or hospitalize animals overnight for additional care if necessary. They lack the proper equipment, training, staffing, and time to handle anything outside of a normal, healthy patient for surgery and recovery. If your hospital is set up for this, your cost will go up. So now you can understand the range of prices in various clinics. There are li uh, liability waivers to be signed, and information is provided to help owners make reasonably informed decisions. However, uh, most places do 30, 50 surgeries a day, and shelters uh, and low-cost clinics simply cannot afford the time and staffing to have lengthy discussions with every owner about the differences in what they do and what full-service clinics do. And 99.9% .9 of the time, pets recover well in these facilities and there are no issues. So these discussions do not typically take precedence. That being said, owners should take some responsibility and do their own research. Uh, if a surgery is $400 in one place and $50 in another, uh, you must co use common sense and ask questions to discern this. Um, cons uh, conversely, just because a surgery cost is higher at your vet, it doesn't mean that they offer all these other services that I mentioned. Again, you must ask, uh, you must ask questions. Uh, do you provide blood work? Uh, does my pet receive a comprehensive physical exam, a limited exam, or any exam at all? Uh, what sort of monitoring is done? Uh, will there be a technician with my pet at all times? Uh, do you give IV fluids? Uh, what do you do in the event of an emergency? Are you prepared to handle an emergency? Understand the services offered so you can make an edu educated decision. In summary, make sure to educate yourself and provide your pet with an optimal nutrition and upkeep. And this can significantly lessen chances for development of various problems and visits to a veterinarian. If there, if there will be such a need, after all, make sure to ask questions and know what you are paying for. Well, this is it for today. I hope you found the information useful. Uh, have a great weekend and goodbye. Thanks a lot, Zoya. There's some good information in there, and definitely uh, very important to uh, you know to make sure that the service that your pets are getting is good. Um, let's see here. So uh, for our recipe today, we're going to do uh, how to make a Lugol's iodine solution. Um, just a little disclaimer: uh, this we're not giving you information that can't be readily found. On the internet, there's a lot of uh, different uh, sites that 
have recipes. Uh, one of the most popular is a guy on YouTube who I forget his name now, but uh, shows how to uh, to make that up. So if you look for how to make lugols, uh, you will find uh, a number of different recipes. We're just doing it here for uh, listeners who might be interested. Um, and also just to disclaimer that, uh, you know, we are not your doctor, uh, nor are we medical professionals. Um, so, of course, uh, if you are doing anything uh, to your body in a, in a medicinal way, uh, make sure to consult with your physician or whoever your healthcare professional is. Um, and just take, you know, basically be sensible. You know, don't, it's kind of like we were talking about before the pet health segment. Um, it's best not to jump into things without knowing, first of all, knowing your body, knowing the potential risks, um, and, you know, having the willingness to start slow. Um, so with that said, uh, Basically, to make uh, Lugol's iodine solution, um, you need potassium iodide uh, and and, uh, iodine crystals. Now, these can be obtained uh, in a number of places uh, online. I believe eBay is actually the most common place, um, but you can take a look around. Um, But you want potassium iodide, uh, spelled with a D at the end there, um, and iodine crystals. And the ratio is, excuse me, uh, it is two to one. Uh, so uh, two parts uh, potassium iodide, one part iodine crystals. Um, now this recipe is for a 10% Lugol solution, which is pretty strong. So you may want to uh, double the amount of water um, and you know then make a 5% solution depending on your application. Um, so you want to start with uh, distilled water. Um, use a glass container. Uh, use four ounces of distilled water in a uh, in a glass container. Mix in uh, 33.7 grams of potassium iodide into the water. That's 1.18 ounces. Um, I should also uh, say, you know, be, make sure you have a scale. Don't try to eyeball this stuff. Get a kitchen scale. Do it the right way. Um, so 33.7 grams or 1.18 ounces of potassium iodide into the water. And then you want 16.9 grams of iodine crystals. Uh, put that into the mix. Uh, be very, very careful not to touch the iodine crystals. This is very important. Uh, they can burn your skin, um, because they're so concentrated. If you do touch them with your bare skin, wash right away. Wash it off uh, as much as you can, um, and use uh, wood. Uh, preferably use wooden utensils for this. Use a wooden spoon. Don't use metal. Um, so, just to reiterate, that's uh, four ounces of water, 33.7 grams of potassium iodide into the water, then 16.9 grams of iodine crystals uh, into the mix. Stir with a wooden spoon until they have dissolved into the uh, solution. And then cover with a non-metal cover and let it sit uh, overnight or for give or take uh, 10 hours. Um, And then, uh, you know, in the morning when you come back to it, uh, stir it up again and you have your your 10% uh, Lugol solution. So you could, uh, if you wanted to make a 5% solution, basically double the amount of water to 8 ounces as opposed to 4. I have made this before, and I can attest that it, it works. Um, I find it helpful to store 
in a uh, cool, dark place away from the sun uh, in a glass container and then uh, basically uh, keep, you know, my portion for daily usage in, in a small bottle with a dropper. Um, so I just transfer it out as needed into the small bottle. Um, and uh, it is so concentrated that it lasts quite a long time. Uh, so, you know, if you can get the, uh, the potassium iodide and the iodine crystals, you can make enough of this uh, to last yourself well over a year, uh, if not a, a two or three years. So that's the, uh, that's the recipe. I don't know. Have you, have you guys ever made this before? No, I'd buy it. No, not but personally. So, easy. <laughs> so I guess uh, I'm the mad scientist of the group. I can attest that it's, uh, you know, it's real iodine and it does the trick. Um, but I just want to reiterate one last uh, caveat about this with the iodine crystals. I, I can't say it enough that you need to be really, really careful with iodine crystals, um, especially mm. if you get... The, uh, the pure iodine on your skin and you leave it there for a minute, uh, it can burn, uh, it can leave scars. Um, it's really uh, intense stuff. So just the crystals by themselves. Um, so John, just can, you you wearing repeat, gloves? can you repeat the grams? Yeah. What's that, Gabby? Uh, oh, uh, yes. Uh, 30, so four, four ounces of water. Uh, that's 118 milliliters. Um, 33.7 grams of potassium iodide and 16.9 grams of iodine crystals. Now the ratio is two to one, but there are slightly more, there's a little bit more potassium iodide in this recipe because it's um, not uh, completely soluble in water. And so you use just a tad more of the potassium iodide. But if you go with this recipe, it's with 33.7 grams of uh, potassium iodide and 16.9 grams of iodine crystals. And mix the potassium iodide into the distilled water. Dissolve that completely before you put the iodine crystals in. Let those dissolve. Uh, let it sit overnight, uh, and then you have your solution. I have a question, Jonathan, and you may or may not know this, but does, you, you said it could store for several years. Do you know if the potency goes down after time or I don't uh, honestly I don't really have uh, any experience with that but I can tell you um, in my own experience with storing it um, basically what I've done is taken uh, a couple sheets of parchment paper and then laid them over top of a mason jar and then screwed the lid on over top of that um, and just been very careful not to let it come into contact with the metal lid of the mason jar However, mm-hmm. it puts off uh, vapors, and it's it's a pretty impressive uh, thing. It actually, you know, after having it stored in the same spot um, for about a year and a half now, um, there is there's uh, iodine staining on the shelf where I've had it sitting, and I actually mm-hmm. did have it corrode uh, one of the lids uh, to the mason jar to the point where I had to replace the lid, and that was, it mm-hmm. never came into contact with it, so that was just the vapors coming off the iodine actually corroded the lid. Wow. Um, so, you know, if you can, I would recommend just going full glass, uh, get a glass container that has a glass lid. Um, but be aware, uh, you know, that wherever you store it, you will get some uh, off-gassing. Um, <clears throat> and because <laughs> you will never, ever get it out of the floor. Okay. I have uh, in, in a couple uh 
different spots I've, I've spilled small amounts of iodine onto the counter or onto the floor and you can get a, a good amount of it out but there's always just a little stain left and it's it's pretty potent stuff and it stains uh mm-hmm. for a long long time so i would hate have to imagine what would happen you, have you tried What's using that? vitamin c vitamin c to clean it out uh no no i haven't oh that's a good suggestion well, it's, we'll try it's that. one of the solutions well, that, that is spoken about on the iodine research. Well, it's worth the experiment. <laughs> cool. Yeah. I'm curious about that. I'll have to try that. So, um, you know, and again, if this makes, you know, if it makes you feel uncomfortable to try to make your own Bluebell's iodine, then go with that and just purchase some. You know, this is for people who um, might be able to or have the inclination to make their own. Um, I have found it to be useful and helpful, but, uh, you know, there's, you know, you want to make sure that you have these ratios down, uh, to the gram, to the milligram, uh, if possible. So use a really good scale. Um, don't just go from what I said here today, you know, like that's a place to start. Uh, you can use that recipe to make it, but, uh, look it up, do your research, you know, look up other people who have made it, uh, and just make sure that you have that knowledge in your head before you, before you get into it. Um, and, don't touch the iodine crystals with your skin, and don't spill it, for God's sake. <laughs> How much did you pay for the crystals and the potassium iodide? What's that? How much did you pay for the crystals and the potassium iodide? You know, it was a while ago. Off the top of my head, I don't remember. It wasn't that expensive. I want to say, like, between 20 and $30 uh, for each. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when I made a first batch, I made a full quart of this stuff. Um, so that was a lot, and I still had a lot left. Uh, so it lasts for a very long time. Maybe a lifetime. <laughs> yeah, perhaps. I mean, you really, you're using it a drop at a time, so. Yep. Well, cool. Um, well, that's our show for today. So we'd like to thank everybody for uh for tuning in and for our chat participants. We had a pretty busy uh, chat here today, so that was awesome. Uh, Thanks again to Lynn Farrow for being so gracious and uh, doing that interview with us. Uh, We really appreciated her time. Um, And we would like to encourage you to stay tuned for the other two shows on the SOT Radio Network, The Truth Perspective, uh, tomorrow on Saturday at 2 p.m. Eastern U.S. time and Behind the Headlines on Sunday uh, at noon. Eastern U.S. time, and uh, we are slowly moving to a new, uh, but if you tune into uh, uh, Behind the Headlines this weekend, you can hear more about that, and we will uh, tell you more as we, you know, find out more about when we're actually going to be switching, so we'll we'll give you more info on that. Um, Thanks again. Have a great weekend, everybody, and we will talk to you next week. Bye. Bye, everybody. Bye.